Friends, I wonder this morning if any of you have ever been deeply disappointed. Have you ever experienced the kind of deep disappointment that comes from eagerly anticipating something is going to happen? Building up to it, waiting for it to be here. And then, all of a sudden, circumstances come about that are outside of your control and everything just crumbs crumbling down. And you have no ability to enjoy this thing you've been looking forward to. I imagine many of you have. As I thought about my own experiences of deep disappointment, I don't remember what I was looking forward to, but I sure remember the feeling, that sinking feeling in your gut where you know that what you wanted is lost and you have nothing that you can do to get it back. Sometimes that comes about because of our circumstances. Other times that comes about because of our interactions with people. Someone who we trusted to do something or who we longed to see do something acts in a way that causes us to be deeply disappointed, that, that produces in our gut that sinking feeling that says, there is nothing I can do to help this or change this. Sometimes we experience deep disappointment with ourselves because for the 5,872nd time, we yell at our kids. We respond in anger when they respond disrespectfully. Whatever the circumstances, I'm talking about disappointment, not mainly because I want to preach on disappointment this morning, but what I want us to see is that how we respond to that disappointment, how we respond to experiences of deep disappointment reveals what's in our heart. How we react when we are deeply disappointed, when we get that feeling, that gut-wrenching feeling in our stomach in response to disappointment, what we do with that quickly reveals what's in our heart. I think that's important for us to recognize this morning because that's what's happening to Jonah here in chapter 4. You see, Jonah is experiencing deep disappointment. He's not exactly looking forward to something joyful and happy, although it was for him, right? He was looking forward to God judging Israel's enemies. And he's deeply disappointed that instead of judgment, God responded with mercy. We saw last week Jonah's deep disappointment as he responded to God's mercy towards Nineveh with anger. Chapter 4 verse 1 starts out saying that Jonah, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. We talked about last week how that was Jonah saying, it's exceedingly evil to me that God would turn and show mercy to these pagan, wicked terrorists. Jonah takes his disappointment and he leaves. Right? It's essentially, chap, chapter 4, verse 5, is essentially Jonah taking his ball and going home. He's going out of the city. He doesn't even respond to God's gracious question in verse 4. Right? Do you do well to be angry? There's no response. Jonah just heads out of the city. It's not a mistake that he goes eastward. We'll see later when we talk about some of his responses that going eastward is actually heading away from the presence of the Lord. Out into the wilderness, in effect. Jonah is experiencing deep disappointment, and so he flees again from the Lord, just like he did in chapter 1. And then he goes on this emotional roller coaster as God follows him out of the city, and as God changes Jonah's circumstances, Jonah goes from being angry enough and sad enough to die to being exceedingly glad in verse 6 in response to the plant. And then, when that's lost, he goes back to being ready to die. 
How many of you have ridden an emotional roller coaster like that? Where within a day you can be ready to die one minute and exceedingly happy the next. Right? I've done that. My circumstances change and I go up and down the roller coaster. Only I don't get butterflies. I feel sick to my stomach. Jonah's responses to disappointment, Jonah's responses to his changing circumstances reveal his heart. That's what we're going to see from this text today. As we walk through this text, we're going to see that God appoints circumstances. And that he does that, at least for two reasons, in order to reveal our hearts and in order to reveal his heart. God appoints circumstances to reveal our heart and to reveal his heart. That's going to be our outline as we walk through the text today. We're going to think about that. God appointing our circumstances... And then how that reveals our heart. And then how that reveals God's heart. And we're going to see it in Jonah. And we're also going to see it in ourselves. So let's think about that. God appointing our circumstances is where I want to begin. You see, if we look at verses 6, 7, and 8, we see a series of appointments. Look at verse 6, right? Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. These divine appointments are God acting in the life and circumstances of Jonah. And what God is doing is he's teaching Jonah this object lesson using a plant and a worm and a scorching east wind. He's appointing first the plant in verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God is not just interested in providing shade here for Jonah, although that is what he's doing, right? Jonah goes out into the wilderness in verse 5, and he makes a booth, like Israel often did when they were in the wilderness wandering. They made a booth because the sun is scorching down and they need shade. But as Jonah goes out east of Babylon, he doesn't find a lot of materials to make a good shade uh, offering little hut. Instead, he makes this kind of pitiful little hut, little booth, and then God appoints this plant to come over and give him the shade he needed. And he's exceedingly glad over this plant because now the sun doesn't beat down on him, right? If you've ever been hiking out in, the, in Minnesota, even in the, in the summer, you know how nice it is to come into shade after the sun has been beating down on you. That's what Jonah was experiencing. But God intended more than just shade through this plant. Notice, Jonah, the author of Jonah gives two reasons. So that it might be shade over his head, verse 6, to save him from his discomfort. Again, if you have an ESV, you have a little footnote likely. If you have an NIV, you might have a footnote as well, or other translations might translate it differently. But you'll notice in the ESV footnote, it said, or his evil. We've got that repeated word that we talked about last week, evil, coming up again and again, right? Nineveh. Practicing evil, turning away from their evil, God relenting of the evil or disaster he had planned for Nineveh, and then it being evil in Jonah's eyes in verse 1 of chapter 4. And now, God is appointing this plant to save Jonah from his evil. I think there's more going on here than just discomfort related to being in the sun and sweating a lot, right? God is appointing this plant To start a chain of events to save Jonah from the evil that is in his heart. Namely, how he's treating 
Nineveh and responding to God's mercy. God is dealing with the evil and dealing with the discomfort at the same time. Jonah doesn't really recognize it yet. But he's experiencing the relief from discomfort, and so he's exceedingly glad. God is appointing this plant as an act of mercy to Jonah. So in this object lesson, this plant going up over Jonah and providing this shade is mercy. So far, so good. Now, God appoints a second thing in verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. What is happening here is that God is taking this little tiny little worm and appointing it to go in and eat at this plant and cause the plant to die. God is withdrawing the mercy that he had given Jonah. It only lasted a day. Jonah enjoyed the shade while it was there. And then the plant withered. And now Jonah's, he's he's back to square one, right? He's back to his little lean-to booth to try to protect himself from the sun. But God doesn't leave it there. Verse 8, God appoints again. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Not only is God appointing a little worm to go up and take this mercy away, but he's actually appointing active judgment for Jonah. In this scorching east wind coming across. Now, in calling it a scorching east wind, it's not just trying to tell you the direction the wind came from and the fact that it was hot. The book of Jonah here is actually alluding to the way that God's people talked about God using the nations to judge them. In both Ezekiel and Hosea, Assyria and Babylon are called scorching east winds that would drive against God's people and cause them to essentially wither and die, right? These warnings of judgment that were going to happen as a result of Israel's disobedience were referred to as this east wind, the scorching east wind. So this idea that the east wind is coming is not merely, you know, a soft breeze like we might enjoy on a summer day. It's a scorching east wind of judgment. God is not only withdrawing the mercy from Jonah, but he's adding on the judgment, So that Jonah can experience what it's like to stand under the judgment of God. Both the worm and the wind are attacking in this case. The worm is attacking the plant and the wind is attacking Jonah. The sun is beating down on his head as God's active judgment. So God is appointing this mercy and appointing this judgment. We'll talk about what he intends to do in a moment. But what I want us to see first is God doing this. Actively changing Jonah's circumstances by appointing different things. This is not the first time in the book of Jonah that God has appointed something. If you look back in chapter 1, verse 17, you'll see this again. Chapter 1, verse 17, after Jonah is cast over the side of the ship, what happens? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If we think about what that compares to, there's an, an, there's an analogous relationship, a connection between the great fish that God appointed and the plant that God appointed, right? Namely, both of them are acts of mercy that Jonah didn't deserve and didn't provide for himself, where God intervened in his circumstances by appointing 
something to deliver him. A fish in one case, a plant in another. God is appointing or changing Jonah's circumstances. Other places in Jonah, we see this active sovereignty of the Lord at work without using the word appointed. But if you think about it, in the end of Jonah, God is appointing this scorching east wind. And how does he respond initially when Jonah flees on a ship bound for Tarshish? Verse 4 of chapter 1, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest upon the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God used, again, forces of nature to change Jonah's circumstances, to bring judgment on Jonah in response to his rebellion. Right? All through the book of Jonah, God is sovereign over circumstances. God is appointing circumstances for Jonah for the sake of doing the work he intends. God is sovereign, in other words, over all things that are happening in the book of Jonah. Divine appointments, God appointing circumstances, means that he is sovereign over everything, from the tiniest worm to the great forces of nature, sovereign over kings and kingdoms, sovereign over any circumstance or person that Jonah would come into contact. And what God is doing in this book is he is using that sovereign control, that ability to appoint all things. He is using that to divinely arrange Jonah's circumstances for his purposes, right? We saw that in the the beginning of Jonah as God cast that, that wind on the sea. What was that for? That was so that the sailors would start crying out to their gods and would come down into the belly of the ship and say, Jonah, wake up. What are you doing? And that was so that the sailors would become so afraid that they cast lots and they find out it's Jonah. And Jonah has to confess to them that he is the prophet of Yahweh who is fleeing from him. And that was so that as he confessed that, and as he said, what you need to do is you need to throw me into the water, that they would do that and they would call out to God and ask his forgiveness. And that was so that Jonah would be swallowed up by the giant fish, right? You see how this is working? God is appointing circumstances to accomplish his purposes in the life of Jonah. And he's in control of it all. God is always in control, always working towards the goals that he has in mind, always accomplishing his purposes. That's the first thing we need to understand. If we're going to think about how circumstances reveal what's in our hearts, we need to first recognize that the circumstances themselves come from God. God appoints all things. The Bible talks about God this way as ultimately sovereign over everything. But it's important for us to remember, because you may be thinking, well, everything? Like, what if the ship would have crashed and the sailors would have died? Right? We can find these things in our mind when we think about God's sovereignty. It says, what about this? We need to recognize that God is never the author of evil. That God in the scriptures is never said to be the one doing evil. He is sovereign over absolutely and every circumstance he is in control but he is never responsible for that evil that doesn't mean god just gets a free pass what that means is like we see in jonah god who is sovereign over the tiniest worm and the forces of nature and is all wise and all perfect perfectly arranges every circumstance so that it leads to good for those who are called by god 
right? Romans 8. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God works everything perfectly together and appoints every circumstance with complete and utter perfection. Even if we don't feel it in the moment. Even if we look at our particular circumstances and say, this is no good. Right? I can guarantee that when Jonah, what we know from the text, I don't even have to speculate. We know from the text, right, that when the plant died and the scorching east wind came, even though that was God doing it and Jonah wanted to die, it was for Jonah's good. God was sovereignly appointing with complete perfection every circumstance. The sovereignty of God is not terrifying news it is comforting news because the fact that god appoints every circumstance means that god is sovereign and able to save able to rescue it means that if you're thrown overboard because of your disobedience to the king of kings and lord of lords that god can cause a giant fish to come and swallow you and rescue you it means that no matter how far you flee from the presence of the lord as we saw in chapter two that god hears And is able to answer and save. So it is good news. And our response is not to be fatalistic and say, well, if God just appoints everything, it doesn't matter what I do. Our response that we're called to from the scriptures is to trust. To trust that as God is appointing everything, it is indeed for your good and for mine and for his glory. So we see that God appoints our circumstances. God is in sovereign control of everything. He appoints our circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Many of those purposes are hidden. I don't pretend to know why God would appoint you to experience cancer. I can't possibly know that. And anyone who tells you they know exactly why is just speculating. But I can tell you with certainty two, circumst- or two purposes to these sovereign appointments of circumstance that we see here in the book of Jonah. The first one is that God appoints our circumstances to reveal our hearts. I can see that and say that with certainty in the book of Jonah here. Look with me again at chapter 4. Think about what is happening as God is bringing Jonah. He's brought him all through these circumstances, through the whole book. He's appointed everything that's happened. And now we're here at the end. And God has chosen to show mercy to Nineveh. Which means that God... Because he is in control of everything and because he is all-knowing, this is his plan from the beginning. And Jonah is there and angry with it. And let's think about how Jonah's heart is revealed in what he does in response. Like I said before, in verse 5, we see Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord to the east of the city. If you read in in Genesis at the beginning of our Bibles... As we read about Adam and Eve sinning and rebelling against the Lord, and they are kicked out of the garden, which direction do they go? They go east. As Cain murders his brother Abel and then flees, which direction does he go? He goes east. As Abraham and Lot look over the promised land and decide where to go, where does Lot choose? East. And what is there? Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Consistently throughout the scriptures, moving eastward... For God's people means moving away from his presence and towards the wilderness. So the fact that the biblical author here records that Jonah moves east of the city. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Means that Jonah is again fleeing from the presence of the Lord. 
It's a little bit different, right? God hasn't told him, hey, go do this, at least that we know of. And he's just in outright rebellion of it. This is more Jonah going eastward to sulk. He's moving away from the presence of the Lord. He doesn't really want to stay in his presence when he won't give him his way. He goes out into the wilderness. And then what does he do? He tries to become self-sufficient by building this little booth. He goes out into the wilderness. And instead of relying on the Lord to provide for him, he tries to provide for himself by building this little lean-to to protect himself from the sun. Because... Out in the desert, it is miserable in the heat. As he's waiting, notice verse 5 says, He sat under it in the shade till he should see what became of the city. Or what would become of the city, excuse me. So, So he's waiting, sitting, waiting, watching Nineveh to see what will become of it. What does that mean he's expecting? He's wanting God to answer his prayer from verses 1 to 4, right? He's wanting God to answer this prayer that, remember, we talked about last week was kind of this veiled threat, right? It's Nineveh or me. Lord, if you're going to show mercy to Nineveh, then let me die. And he's hoping that maybe God will change his mind. Just think about this for a minute. Jonah has just evangelized an entire city of, of essentially new, like, Almost converts to Yahweh, right? They're, they're close. They're on the path. They're repentant of their sin. They're turning. They're, they're crying out to God. And what does Jonah do? He doesn't stay there and say, hey, let me tell you about the God of Israel. Let me tell you about this God you are crying out to that you have now repented and asked, and he has granted you mercy. Let me tell you about that mercy. No, he goes and he sits and he waits and he watches, hoping that God will still change his mind and destroy them. Jonah is not responding rightly to the mercy in Nineveh. His actions reveal a heart that is bitter towards Nineveh, a heart that is opposed to the mercy that God is showing, and that even wants to get away from God if he's going to be that merciful. Jonah's heart is also revealed, though, in his emotions, in the emotional language of chapter 4. Look at verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is kind of a grumpy prophet, right? There's a lot of places in Jonah where he is just not happy. But here he's really happy. Why is he happy? Because God is being merciful to him. Is it right to be happy over the mercy of God? This is a good response, right? Sit under the shade of the Lord's mercy and rejoice with exceeding joy. Sounds good. But notice, notice. The end of verse 6, the way it says it, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. That, that exceedingly there is a clue that in the original languages, there's some parallelism with another spot in chapter 4. If we look back up at verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. In the English, the, order, the word order is a little bit different. But in the Hebrew, they're exactly the same. One circumstance made Jonah exceedingly displeased. Exceedingly angry. One circumstance made Jonah exceedingly happy. What was the difference? He was happy when God was showing mercy to him. He was angry when God was showing mercy to Nineveh. Right? In Jonah's emotional responses to the changing circumstances, we see his heart start to come out. <clears throat> Think also with me 
about what made Jonah want to die. Verse 3, verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why is he saying that? Because God has been merciful to Nineveh, right? Look at verse 8. He became faint, and towards the end, he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, the same kind of word order we're talking about. The same, it's meant to say, these two things are connected. What is causing him to want to die in verse 8? God's mercy has been taken away from Jonah. So in one circumstance, he wants to die because God is merciful to Nineveh and will not judge them. And in another circumstance, he wants to die because God was merciful to him and is now taking it away and is judging him. You see what's happening here? These changing circumstances are revealing Jonah's heart. And what they reveal is a heart that is full of self-centeredness. A heart that is full of a self-centered view of God's mercy. God's divine appointments are exposing this in Jonah. You can even see it in the way Jonah pities. Look at verse 10. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now, the way it's worded there, we might think that it's talking about Jonah feeling sorry for the plant. But that's not, that's not really what's happening here. That's, that's one meaning of the word, but it kind of goes beyond that in this case. Jonah is not feeling sorry for the plant. He's feeling sorry about what happened to the plant because of how it affects him, right? He's feeling sorry for himself. Jonah's pity is self-centered pity here. It is sorry because the plant is no longer there to give him the shade. And he is now experiencing instead the judgment of God. One commentator puts it this way I thought was real helpful. He says, what amazed Jonah about grace was only what it meant to him personally. What amazed Jonah about grace was only what it meant to him personally. Jonah is viewing God's mercy, God's kindness, God's grace through self-centered lens, only related to what it means for him. God is revealing this in the heart of Jonah through these changing circumstances. God's goal isn't just to reveal it, though, just to expose it and say, look, Jonah, how wicked and evil you are. Right? God's goal, his, his judgment and his mercy are both meant to lead us to repentance and to trust in him. And that's what God is doing as he's asking Jonah these questions. Do you do well to be angry? The Lord says in verse 4. Or verse 9. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? This statement, do you do well to be angry, is a calling out to Jonah and saying, look at what you're doing. Look at how you're thinking about my mercy. Is this right? Is this the way you ought to think? The answer to that is no. I like Jonah's answer. Yes, I do well enough to be angry, even enough to die, right? Like he's sticking to his guns, but no. You're angry for the wrong reasons, Jonah. God is exposing Jonah's heart and calling him to repent, calling him to recognize that right now the way he is thinking about mercy completely contradicts what he confessed in chapter 2 in the belly of the fish, right? What did he say in chapter 2 in the belly of the fish? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And now he's mad because God is taking salvation that belongs to him and giving it to someone else. God is revealed and calling to repentance Jonah's self-centeredness. 
I think this is important for us to see this kind of work being done in Jonah's life. Because it's the same kind of work that God does in our life with our circumstances. You see, we're meant to read the book of Jonah and the character we're most meant to identify with because the character we're most often like is Jonah. We all suffer at one time or another, or if you're like me, repeatedly from self-centered views of God's mercy. The way God works in our hearts what we call sanctification, the way he changes us, is he sovereignly appoints our circumstances to expose what's in our heart, our sinful inclinations. Because you can't hide it, right? Just like when you experience deep disappointment and then you respond with with anger and frustration and bitterness and all those kind of things just well up and you're like, oh geez, I would really like to hide all that. But you just can't. When God appoints circumstances that draw out your heart, it is merciful because he's showing you what's there and he's showing others that love you and care about you what's there so that together you can repent and you can turn and you can strive after holiness in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God. So friends, I ask you this morning to consider what do your responses to your circumstances, reveal that you believe about God and others? Do your responses reveal a self-centered view of mercy that says the only thing that's amazing about grace is how it's amazing for me? And I would imagine many of you would answer just like I would, sometimes yes, sometimes no. We are on the road to sanctification, but it is merciful of God to draw these things out. It is merciful of God to expose in our hearts when we treat the gospel promises of Jesus Christ like merely a consumer product to help us, to benefit us, to be for us. It is indeed a precious truth of the gospel that the gospel is for you and for me. But when we treat that as the sum total of what God has given us in Jesus We are having a very self-centered view of God's mercy. Same kind that Jonah does. If we have this kind of self-centered view of God, it will rob us of our joy, just like it does Jonah. Notice how quick Jonah is to ride that emotional roller coaster. Right? When Jonah is thinking primarily about the experience of either God's mercy or God's justice... Either God's mercy or God's judgment, excuse me. He's thinking about it in terms of how it affects him. And when it starts affecting him badly, he gets real grumpy. And when things start going good, he's happy as can be. That's a sign that Jonah is looking to the comfort that God provides instead of God as the comforter. He's looking to this plant instead of the one that planted it. Right? If he was looking and finding his joy in this God who gave him this plant and this shade and it was good. If he was looking to that God for his joy, nothing has changed if God appoints a worm to come and eat that plant. Right? God himself has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character is still for Jonah's good. And so if Jonah is looking to him for satisfaction, then he's going to experience an unshakable joy, the kind that doesn't change with circumstances. Most of us don't look like that, though. What we need to be able to look like that, to be able to think like that, the antidote to this kind of self-centered view of God and his mercy, 
is to behold God. To behold God in all of his goodness, all of his mercy. And the good news is that God appoints our circumstances not just to reveal our hearts, but to reveal his heart. He appoints all of these circumstances to not just show us who we are and how much we fall short and how much we need grace, how much we need mercy, how much we need a savior. But he appoints all of these circumstances to show the greatness of his provision for us. That's what we see in Jonah 2. Look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The author of Jonah is contrasting the pity that Jonah feels with the pity that God feels. Jonah, his pity is turns inward towards himself. Jonah is sorry for himself because of his troubles. And so he sits there sulking. God's pity, though, doesn't turn inward towards himself. Notice God's pity is directed outward towards Nineveh. God shows pity, in other words, when he is sorry for Nineveh because of their troubles. Not only that, but what he does is he goes beyond what is required by justice He shows merciful compassion towards Nineveh when they repent and turn from their sins. The kind of pity that God shows, there's a little bit of a word play here. In Hebrew, this word can mean multiple things. And what it's talking about with Jonah is it's talking about this self-centered pity that looks inward and looks only on his circumstances. And with God, it's talking about showing this outward compassion towards others that's going above and beyond to help them. That's what's happening here. God is revealing... By contrast, as we see Jonah, God is revealing what he is like. He's been doing this all the way through the book, hasn't he? Showing us how he is moved with compassion towards the lost. As Jonah runs away as a rebel, what does God do? He pursues him, right? To show him compassionate mercy. As Jonah is running from God and happens to find himself by God's divine appointment, on this ship full of pagan sailors, what does God do? He doesn't smite the ship and save Jonah. He causes Jonah to have to confess who he is, and in effect saves the sailors. By the end of the experience, they're crying out to Yahweh for mercy. God is pursuing them with compassion and mercy, even though they don't deserve it, even though they did nothing to warrant it. Then God shows Jonah this kind of mercy in the belly of the fish. As he's even complaining and still still doesn't understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. He's, he's expressing a little bit of self-righteousness. God is patient with Jonah and compassionate. God causes the fish to spit him back on land. And then what does God do? He comes to him again. Gives him a second chance. This rebellious prophet who he knows is going to be grouchy after he shows mercy to Nineveh. God still shows this compassionate care for him. And he even even here, as Jonah tries to leave the city and goes eastward into the wilderness, away from the presence of the Lord, notice God follows him out. God is out there in the wilderness, and what does he do first? He meets Jonah with compassionate mercy, raises up this plant over him, protects him from the sun. Even God's withdrawing that compassionate mercy for a time and a season. Seems like God maybe has changed his mind. No, he hasn't. What he's doing is he's mercifully drawing out of Jonah this object lesson. Look at your 
desire for my mercy. And look at how you responded when I showed mercy to others. God is all the way through showing this compassionate mercy. It's revealing this heart of God that he has mercy. This heart of God that Jonah even confesses, right? I knew, he says in verse 2, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Because Jonah is so self-centered, he can't even see it. That feels like a bad thing. But that is a good thing. It is good that God is like that. That is our only hope. Friends, as we zoom out and think about not just the book of Jonah, but as we think about the whole history of God's people, this is what he's always doing. God is always appointing circumstances to reveal what's in our hearts and what's in his heart, right? If you think about the history of humankind, what has God revealed all through the history of his people? That we are a stubborn and rebellious people. That we often are drawn to self-righteousness and self-centeredness. That we respond so many times, like Jonah, to our circumstances. Be they about God and his mercy towards others, or be they about the experience of disappointment, or be they about anything else. God is teaching us that we are in rebellion, that we are self-righteous, that we are selfish, and that we are sinful. That we need a savior. God is revealing that in our hearts through our circumstances, but he's also revealing that he is graciously provided, right? All throughout history, as God is patient with his rebellious people. If you think about the history of Israel, just just read the book of Kings and be amazed at how bad God's people are and how patient he is with them. Even though he does eventually judge them and send them into exile, even in that he is preserving a remnant. He is not destroying them completely. God is compassionate and merciful, and he reveals that all throughout history with his people. All of that history of redemption accumulates. The ultimate revelation of that is in Jesus Christ himself, right? John, the book of John, says in the beginning that, that, that Jesus himself, the Son of God, is the one who reveals the Father. Right In John 14, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, you know, they say, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And he says, have I not been with you long enough? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what does he reveal about what the Father is like? Matthew 11. We see a revelation of what the Father is like. Matthew 11, 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And what does it look like to see the Father? He says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Christ Jesus, God reveals perfectly his heart. And it is gentle and lowly towards sinners who are in need of a savior. It is compassionate and merciful towards all who would repent and turn to him. All who would come to him and he will not cast out. The Son makes known the Father. Jesus reveals the heart of God. And he reveals it most clearly, of course, in the cross, right? In the cross, 
Jesus as he's up there suffering and dying for the sake of others. And they're there mocking him. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What does God say about Nineveh? Should I not have pity on them because they don't know their right hand from their left? This is the same story. The same God who is acting on behalf of Nineveh sent his son to act on behalf of the world who would turn and trust in him. They do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And he does indeed. God is doing this. He's divinely appointing all of these circumstances leading up to and coming out from the cross to reveal our need for a savior and to reveal his provision for a savior so that we would turn and trust in his mercy. Just like Nineveh did. Just like God was calling Jonah to do. Not only that though, he's doing it so that we would joyfully join in extending that mercy to others. That's what Jonah was really missing, wasn't it? This this idea that God's mercy was not just for me, but for anyone he would be merciful to. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he can be merciful to whomever he pleases. God is calling us to join in that. We will miss the heart of God in Jesus, if we view Jesus as primarily a means to our own salvation, if we view Jesus self-centeredly as only what he does for me, and as long as I'm in the shade of Christ, I'm happy for others to be outside and experiencing the scorching winds of God's judgment. If we view Jesus like that, we will miss the heart of God. The heart of God is calling us to joyfully join in, to invite others to come and take shelter in the Son of God, to come and experience the mercy that we've experienced and to take joy when they do. Friends, that's what we're called to do as God's people. That's the message of Jonah. And it ends on a cliffhanger. A weird spot, right? Should I not be concerned about these 120,000 people and much cattle? God is asking us, is it right that I show compassion? Is it right that I show mercy? It's really a question, does salvation indeed belong to the Lord? And all who take their hope in Jesus ought to respond, yes, indeed, Lord, it is right and good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have indeed orchestrated all circumstances, that you have appointed everything, including including today, to work in your people to expose our continued need for you and to expose your continued need uh, your continued provision for us thank you god that you have indeed beautifully and powerfully and definitively provided that we don't uh, lord we don't have to fear that scorching east wind is your final word to us but that we take shelter in the shade of the cross and enjoy with great gladness, the salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help us to enjoy it so much that an overflow of that would be our longing to see others enjoy it too. Would you accomplish, God, what only you can do? We trust that you will. We know that you are good and working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So thank you for your work. Amen.